Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, 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 rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Hello, this is Alex Donish. Um, thank you all for joining us today. We want to welcome you all to Frank Donish's 2070 monthly speaker series hosted by the Manos 2070, an organization dedicated to reclaiming and enriching uh, indigenous Mexican-American culture and enhancing the way of life of our people in the 21st century. Again, my name is Alex Janish. I'm a member of the Manos 2070 and will be the moderator of today's program. After we hear from our speaker, we'll have time for questions and answers. You can type your questions into the chat box, which can be found at the bottom of your screen. Leave your video off and your mic muted to eliminate background noise and prevent unwanted Zoom bombing as possible. I know people are also listening um, from Facebook, and I will be grabbing the Facebook questions as well. Uh, our speaker today is Dr. Ernesto Morales, who will be talking about his recent book, Insurgent Aslan, The Liberated Power of Cultural Resistance. Dr. Morales is on the faculty at Prescott College, where he teaches in the, teaches in the Masters of Social Justice and Community Organizing. He has worked as an organizer for the past three decades. Uh, Dr. Morales, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. It's very nice to be here today. Before we get started in talking about uh, the book, Insurgent Aslan, I think it's really important for me to say a couple of things. Um, I don't think that, you know, I want to let this moment pass and not give uh, some praise and special thanks to the hundreds of thousands of people in this country and around the world who've gone out into the streets and made it clear in no uncertain terms that the current system must be replaced. In a manner of days, idols that glorify slavery and all kinds of deprivations that humans have subjected each, each other to have literally been pulled to the ground by masses of people who have finally had enough. A conversation around defunding the police has leaped into the mainstream, demanding a return of resources that center on education, social services, and mental health. And finally, I want to say emphatically that black lives do matter. They matter. I say that as the stepson of a proud black man who raised me as his own from the time I was five until I, he passed in 2010, as the brother of two younger black siblings, an uncle to their children, as the proud father of three, son, of three children, two sons and a daughter, whose mother is black. In my life, blackness has not been an abstract concept of some other, but the foundation of my childhood of love, respect, learning to be a man and a father. I say this also because as we gather here today to talk about this book, Insurgent Aslan and the Chicano Movement, it would be easy to forget I am here today by the efforts of a white mother and a black stepfather, that without him, I may have never learned the mental discipline required to survive and excel in a world where the color of my skin is a criminal statement. The last couple of weeks have been very exciting. One of the things that I think is important to keep in mind that when we're talking about this book, the title of it is Insurgent Aslan, The Liberating Power of Cultural Resistance. I wrote this during my doctoral program. The reason that I became interested in this is I had been working as an organizer for, for many years already at that point, probably almost a little over two decades at that point. It was immediately after the uh, World Trade Center attack in 2001 that 
I started noticing as I was listening to newscasts, the reporters were making very clear distinctions between who they called terrorists and insurgents. And it took me a minute before I, I realized that they were talking about, you know, different groups. And so I started really wondering, you know, what's the difference? What is, what is an insurgent? Like I was pretty clear what a terrorist was, but what's an insurgent? And so that led me down this, this path of thinking about resistance. It led me into the readings of uh, many third world uh, warrior scholars. And I think that the big part that really helped, for me anyways, was when I began to think to myself, well, if this is what an insurgent is, and that's being a group of people who are opposed in some way to what they see as an unlawful occupation of their land. They're fighting to expel a foreign invader. And of course, lots of times the way that these words get used, they become somewhat interchangeable, you know? So people use the word insurgent with revolutionary, insurgent with guerrilla. And that's because at, at different times throughout movements, these things do become overlapped with each other. But thinking about insurgency. And so as I started to, to really read about insurgency, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was to investigate the idea of how insurgency or the notion of insurgency plays out within the realm of Chicano studies. That led me into reading a number of people that I think, you know, at least at the moment seemed, I mean, they seemed like maybe they didn't have anything really to do with the Chicano movement. But the more that I read Mao Zedong, the more I read Franz Fernand, the more I read Amilcar Cabral, the more I read Ho Chi Minh, the more I read all of these revolutionaries around the world who had struggled to throw off the yoke of colonization in their own countries, what I began to realize was that we have a struggle here in the United States that's very similar. Very similar, but very different at the same time. And so, because their colonization, the colonization that they were seeking to end were by nations that were thousands of miles away. The colonization that we're seeking to end is being perpetrated within the nation that we live in. There is no, there is no where for them to go to. They believe this is their homeland and they, they act as if it was their homeland. In fact, the entire narrative of U.S. education tells us that white European Americans, that this is their homeland. This has, this has become where they are from. And so, I mean, these things can all be debated. That's not the purpose of this talk. We could do another talk for that. I think that that would be very interesting. But the point being this, if we are colonized people, and we are seeking to overthrow a settler colonial state, then we are in a state of insurgency. Now, what does that mean? How do we prove it? Why would we want to say that those things are even true? One of the things that I found really fascinating in all of these writers was that they insisted, they insisted and spent quite a bit of time talking about the role of culture in resistance movements, specifically what they would call national liberation movements. In particular, they talked about writing. 
as I started to expand that out, what I realized is that there's this whole genre of writing that's called resistance writing. And resistance writing specifically comes out of national liberation movements from around the world. And so there's a couple of books by a professor named Barbara Harlow who really lays out what resistance writing is. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about Harlow is that she says, before the Zapatistas came out, right at the end of the 80s, she said that as a, as a genre, as a, a grouping of writings or whatever, that resistance writing had ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. So basically kind of buying into that, the end of history type of thing, the triumph of capitalism, all of that. And just a few short late, years later, you know, we see the Zapatistas on January 1st, 1994, you know, emerging out of the Lacanan jungle, capturing several cities in Chiapas, and basically stating their opposition to NAFTA, this neoliberal uh, treaty arrangement that was happening between Canada, the United States, and, and Mexico. So clearly, the idea of resistance, clearly history does not end with the fall of the Soviet Union, but that resistance against capitalism, against neoliberalism, uh, against corporatism, uh, continues and continues not just then, but continues down to this day, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, right? What we come to understand is that Aslan, as an idea, is introduced into the Chicano movement in uh, 1969 at the uh, second uh, Chicano National Youth Liberation Conference in Denver, Colorado. There's a whole history that begins to develop from that, from that point. But I think it's also important to, to note that the idea of Aslan or the concept of Aslan wasn't really in widespread use before that, okay? But from that point forward, the use of the word, the use of the ideology has just exploded into thousands of books, thousands of poems, thousands of dissertations, maybe not thousands of dissertations, but a lot of dissertations that all touch on this idea of Aslan, right? As a homeland, as a, a place, as a nation. What we see from reading Mao, what we see from reading Fanon, and what we begin to understand about their struggles, that is also, I think, what we're dealing with here is this moment when people try to separate culture from politics. And they say culture is art and it's music and it's all these other things. And then there's politics, right? But what these people who have fought these uh, wars of national liberation are saying is that culture and politics go hand in hand, that you can't have politics without culture and that you can't have culture without politics. And, and in fact, I think it's Cabral that really makes it very clear because what he is putting forward and what he's saying is that as a distinct grouping of people, there was a moment in time before European incursion into the Americas that we saw ourselves, whoever we were, wherever we were, we saw ourselves as sovereign individuals, right? We were either sovereign, sovereign grouping, we were a sovereign nation, we were sovereign people. But that with the introduction of colonialism, what took place was a disruption. And Cabral calls it a, a disruption in history, right? We're displaced as indigenous people from history because the history that we live in right now is not our history. It is the history of the colonizer. And so the purpose of the national liberation struggle is to return us to history, to return us to history as a distinct people, 
as a sovereign people, as a political people. And the way that we do that is through culture. Because it is the thing that is left to us as colonized people that we are able to produce. Because all other means of production have been taken away. The land has been taken away. The wealth that goes with the land has been taken away. All of that, what we have left to us is culture. And thinking through exactly what that means, it also indicates to us that the political side of it then becomes extremely important because culture alone, the way that it's imagined in the world that we live in, does not lead by itself to liberation. It's resistance, and it can be resistance, but it doesn't lead to liberation. It will only take us so far, but culture and politics together will take us all the way that we want to go. So in the book, what I'm really doing is I'm looking at all of these sources, these different places where, where Chicanos are talking about what it means to resist, right? Where we're looking at movies and at poetry and thinking about how the words that we're using build the culture that moves us towards resistance. And this is where it gets a little tricky. I think that the last couple of weeks have been important in terms of, of thinking this through. Because what we've seen, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't know where this came from. All of these people, I don't know what's happening. How, you know, how did this happen all of a sudden? I, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've read that on Facebook or I've seen a news commentator say, you know, just out of nowhere, but it isn't out of nowhere. It's actually out of years, centuries of organizing and agitating and building culture and building politics. What happened this week is a direct outgrowth of what happened in Ferguson. It's a direct outgrowth of simply saying Black Lives Matter. Because that's such an important statement to be able to make, to say Black Lives Matter. I mean, think about it. If Black Lives Matter in a capitalist system, then that means improvement across the board. Because we see the level of treatment that, that is going on. Right? We experience that in many ways in our, in our own community. It's not out of nowhere. It's out of careful organization and building of, of a political position. And so when we think about insurgent Aslan, what we're thinking about is that political position. Mao, Fanon, all of them, they make it very clear that the responsibility of the guerrilla, the responsibility of the insurgent, the responsibility of the organizer is to educate first. That is the first responsibility, is to politically educate the people to develop their will. One of the big sort of equations that I deal with in the book is this equation. It wasn't actually written this way by Mao Zedong. It was... Um, from an essay that I read by this gentleman who worked for the American government. His name was Edward L. Katzenbach. Katzenbach says that Mao's theories of warfare and culture can be boiled down into one 
equation. And that equation is simply space plus time equals will. In that the insurgent must trade space. And now in Mao's case, that space was literal space as he retreated from the Japanese army in order to maintain his own army, in order to not have it destroyed. He traded space for time, the time that they would need to develop the will of the people to resist the incursion of the Japanese. And I think the same thing is, is true. And I think that we've seen it here in the Americas, although the space that we have, the space that we had is already gone. But we see, right, as we continue to resist assimilation, as we continue to think about how it is that, that we once again become a distinct people, right, a people with history, that we know that we go through different spaces of identity, that we have Latino, that there's Hispanic, that there's Mexican, there's Mexican-American. I mean, there's just all of these different spaces that we use as a way of resisting the encroaching hegemony of European civilization. And through each one of those spaces, we escape, we develop time, we give ourselves time to eventually come to the point where we understand, right, what actually has to happen. That is developing the will of the people to resist. And so, I think that what's interesting is as you begin to put all of it into a certain context, right, um, what we see is that when we start looking at the music and we start looking at the movies and we start reading the books, I mean, if we read them with an eye to understanding their purpose in a resistance movement, as opposed to just simply a cultural production, we begin to really see the depth of what's happening within the Chicano movement. I think it's important to be able to, to see that because then what we really have is a decision. We have a decision that we can make as a, as a group of people and we have a decision that we can make on a personal level. And that's whether or not to join the resistance. It's a simple decision, really. I mean, it has far-reaching implications, but it's a simple decision. But you can't make the decision if you don't know that that's actually going on. Because what do we hear all the time? Oh, the Chicano movement's dead. There's no such thing as the Chicano movement. They're all crazy. They're all old people, Chicano sources. You know, I mean, they're, they're the only people that, that believe in that. But I would really submit to you, based upon my understanding of third world movements and on my understanding of liberation movements, that anybody who uses the word Chicano that anybody who writes about Chicanos, right, is involved in resistance against settler colonialism to some extent. And I think that it's also important to understand when we think about this idea of nation, right, not, not this idea of state, we're, we're not ready for that in any way, shape, or form. But when we think about this idea of nation, the largest charge that comes against nation is that it's that it's uninclusive, that it keeps people out. And that is certainly one way of, of thinking about nation. There are other definitions of nation. One of them that I work with, and I definitely work with in the book, is this, this idea 
that the nation is the largest gathering of people that can command loyalty. Now, thinking about it that way certainly changes it because everything can't just be the way that we want it to be. So the, the mission, and I think that this is, you know, a big part of what the people that I'm studying and the people that I wrote about in this book are saying is we have to scale up. We have to think about how we make the movement bigger, not how we make it smaller, not how it is that we lay out demands to people that they think exactly the way that we do, but that we allow space for debate. As long as we're debating about what it means to be Chicano, we are in an insurgent mode. Now that may seem counterintuitive, but definition means death. When we know that we are in constant flux and constantly changing and that we're constantly evolving, that is a vibrant, that is a dynamic culture. That is a culture that can continue to exist. That is Chicano culture right now. I'd like to read just a couple of pages for you guys. I think that this is, uh, this is important, and then I'd be happy to take any questions if, if there are any. But this is from the, the final part of the book. Aslan, who believes in that Chicano hippie stuff anymore? I'll tell you who. Samuel Huntington, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Tom Horn, John Hoopenthal, ICE agents, and the people who run Homeland Security, to name a few. What we should be asking ourselves is why these self-appointed representatives of white America take Chicanos and Chicanas learning their history and culture as so threatening to their sovereignty as settlers, and so much more seriously than a lot of Chicanos seem to. Euro-American lawmakers in Arizona have certainly proven how seriously they take the teachings of Chicano and Chicano studies in school. The Americas are the last and greatest stronghold of Western colonialism. The colonial settler system in North America has assumed and maintains its hegemonic position as a historical homeland for white Europeans. A radical historical revision by white nationalists made possible by the disintegrated condition of indigenous culture, history, and resistance, both on a personal and national level, have allowed a version of history to be taught and presented as canon to generation after generation of invaders that glorifies the colonizer. With the destruction of indigenous civilizations, many political and cultural aspects of those civilizations, i.e. education, religion, family structure, that would have been important to Chicano Chicana development, both as a nation and as individuals were lost. By including in the Chicano Chicana liberation movement, the ideas, theories, beliefs of a pan-indigenous effort of resistance, Chicanos and Chicanas can begin to experience how their own liberation movement can become a part of the greater pan-indigenous movement in the Americas through the understanding that indigenousness is reconstructed, reshaped, and actively lived as resurgence against the process of annihilation that are inherent to colonialism. Given the inherently oppositional nature of these competing paradigms, Chicanos as Mesoamerican people need to decide what they really want. Is it really occupied America, as Professor Acuna has stated? Is there really a pedagogy of the oppressed as put forward by Paulo Freire? Because if the answer is yes, and if it is really yes, then that is a fundamental challenge to the right of rule by the descendants of Western Europeans on this continent. Even trying to express these ideas as part of a multicultural project 
that seeks greater inclusion through understanding poses a danger for the United States that lies in the unreconciled treatment and history of indigenous people. And then finally, these, these spaces of identity have talked about, talked about above that Chicanos and Chicanas have moved through to this point cannot provide room for a full critique of the Chicano-Chicana colonial situation because they are a product of its formation. Just as race is a construct, culture is a construct. Culture, though, presents alternatives, especially when we understand that to some extent, Chicano-Chicanas are responsible for the upholding for upholding the hegemony of settler colonialism they find themselves laboring under. It is this system of oppression that Chicano and Chicanas confront through resistance, writing, and insurgency. If colonialism is a three-legged stool, one leg of which is Chicano-Chicana acquiescence, think how quickly it becomes unbalanced when that support is withdrawn. It is not Mexicans who are dreaming of Aslan. It is Chicanos and Chicanas born, raised, baked brown, and fired rock hard in this oven of colorblind racial neutrality who are dreaming of a new and better world. The real issue here is who controls the hearts and minds of the people? Who gets to tell their story? How do they get to tell it? And how does that story inform future struggles? My question is this, and I feel it is an important one. Once laws banning ethnic studies start passing all over the country as the affirmative action propositions have, then what? As Chicanos, Chicanas, Chicanx people living in the United States, are Chicanos, Chicanas, and Chicanx people living in the United States as serious about, as their opponents about developing the will of the people to resist? So, I mean, if there's any questions, uh, if there are, I don't know. I can't see. Hey, so uh, we have a couple of questions here. Um, one we got from C. Hernandez is, can you discuss parallels between other liberation movements and the Chicano movement, uh, worldwide struggle as opposed to a domestic civil rights movement? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, the, book is, the book really is about the parallels between other liberation movements and the Chicano movement. I think we're colonized people. We have been detribalized Chicanos, um, which is interesting because I think that there is a, there is a real movement within the, the Chicano community to reclaim indigeneity. And there is also a real movement within the Chicano movement, uh, within the Chicano community that attempts to shame people for reclaiming their indigenous heritage, which I think is, I think is very interesting and I think is deeply steeped in uh, these notions of, um, or this idea of identity politics, but identity based on the, on the individual, not on the group. So, you know, we, we, face a, we face a settler. We have an irredentist claim to the land on some level, right? Or at least as, in, as in descendants of indigenous people, we have an irredentist claim to the land. Irredentism is a legal term that is recognized all over the world. It's when a, a group of people continue to reside on land that at one time they controlled. That's, that's irredentism, right? And so you can see that the Palestinian struggle is an irredentist struggle. The Chechenian struggle is an irredentist struggle. These are real terms, right, that apply to other groups all over the world, but they do not apply 
here in the United States. This is also a very interesting part of it. There was a time not that long ago within the Chicano movement that it had an international flair to it. Aslan, Vietnam. I mean, you see these posters in books and, and you read about it. You know, the Chicano moratorium against the Vietnam War. These are, these are all pieces of this sort of international idea uh, that was developing within the Chicano movement. I mean, I would argue that that has disappeared completely, that we do not think of ourselves in an international sense, that over the past 30 or 40 years, I think the last time that, that I, I would say the last time that that was really true was when the Zapatistas first came out. That moment was electrifying, not just in other parts of the world, but here in the United States. Young Chicanos rose up in ways that, that, we, that just hadn't happened in a while. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, why the 90s is really sort of a pivotal moment. But if you really look at the overt surveillance and the undercover surveillance and oppression against political movements that's happened since the 9-11 incident, the sort of international sort of idea has just kind of run out. One of the things I think that we need to do as a community, and I think that this is also a road to liberation, to a national resistance movement, is to recapture that international identity. We're not just a group of people that live in the United States. We're not just trapped here. I mean, we're a part of the world. We're a part of the world community. I mean, we, we have a political arrangement that people in other countries study intensely. They study it more intensely than we do because they, they understand the, the position that we're in. There are 40 million of us in this country and we wield no significant political power whatsoever. I mean, I think that that is, I mean, it might be kind of a bitter pill. People might not like to hear it, but it's true. There are a lot of us and we have children sitting in cages because we don't have the political will to get them out of the cages. I think that's the other lesson that we can learn from the last couple of weeks is that there's a political will that needs to be developed. I hope that answers your question or at least try to. Do you got another one for me, Alex? So under, uh, a question from Armando. Uh, I think he just wanted you to clarify. He said, I understand from your talk that essentially asserting one's culture can in itself be a political act, regaining one's history as well. He's asking, is that the point that you're going for? Could you elaborate a little more on that? Asserting one, one's culture is a political act. See, sometimes we do things and we don't really, we don't understand the full ramifications of, of what it is that we're doing. And just because when somebody does something cultural, I mean, they try to move themselves or divorce themselves from the political. I mean, that, that's fine. They can try to do that, but it is, it's, it's a political act. If it wasn't a political act, then we wouldn't try to be Chicano. We wouldn't try to, we wouldn't believe in Aslan. We wouldn't believe in occupied America. We wouldn't have Chicano studies programs if it wasn't a political act, because those things lead, as history has shown in other countries, to serious confrontations 
I mean, that's the whole point of that article that Samuel Huntington wrote in 2004, the Hispanic challenge. He's like, Hey, you can't let these people go around saying that this is their country. Because if you let them go around saying that this is their country, and when he says you people, he's meaning Mexicans and people from Central America. He said, if you let them go around saying this is their country, sooner or later, one of them is going to try to take it back. Huntington was very clear about it. And then the book he wrote that followed up that article, Who We Are. I mean, he's basically reiterating the same thing. What's also fascinating was when that article came out, I mean, there were so many Chicano study scholars who were tripping over themselves to say that Huntington was wrong. But I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think Huntington's wrong. I think he's absolutely right, 100%. And I think that's the danger. That's the problem. And that's the decision that we all have to make. I mean, it just is. What, what else you got for me? Yeah, so there's uh, two questions from uh, C. Hernandez and uh, Carlos Cumpion that I think kind of come together. They're asking you, um, well, specifically one of the questions, can you address the criticisms of Aslan and indigenous identity, even within the Kano movement and community? And then Carlos says, uh, does the term Latinx suspect of anti-Chicano sentiment? Could you maybe just talk about, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of things about nation, you know, irredentist claim to the land, Aslan. What does that really mean? And can you maybe address some of those more current criticisms specifically, um, you know, of anti-indigeneity or that, yeah, can you, anti-blackness lately? And then also like what Latinx and Chicano mean? Because yeah. I know that you think that they're two different things. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like when you start looking at, tropes and you start looking at tropes within literature right because this is a large part of what the book is about too well those things go hand in hand right i mean then we start talking about writing and resistance and insurgency and you know so the the whole idea of tropes or these legends there are there are a few that have survived the conquest then and the occupation one of them is is the virgin of guadalupe right tonatzin that idea that, that legend, that story uh, has survived. It survives to this day. There is the, the idea of Aslan. It survived. I mean, it limped along for centuries, but it survived. This notion of the homeland where, you know, the Mexica came from is somewhere north of Tenochtitlan, right? And, you know, people have, have written books about it. One that's really notable for me or, or was really important in my development was a book by uh, Apache Mais that was called um, Aslan, uh, Right for Birth or Birthright. Great book. Um, then there was all the work that Roberto Rodriguez did also in the 90s around the Dernstel map and, and all of that. You know, Aslan, Aslan is an idea that brings a group of people together. Now, I will go on record right now even though, I, I mean, I have a book, it's called Insurgent Aslan, all this. It doesn't really matter if there's ever a place called Aslan. What matters is that we develop in our minds the political fortitude to become cohesive as a group of people to fight for what it is that we want 
in this case, I believe it is for that return to history. It is for the overthrow of settler colonialism. It is for that moment when colonization ends and all of us truly stand here together as, as equals. There are many, many things to figure out at that moment. The least of them in some ways is whether or not we call this place Aslan. Aslan is a political destination that we have yet to arrive at. It is, I think, <laughs> what's been interesting, I think this is interesting anyways, is that like in May of 2019, when all these machistas got together and they said that Aslan is imperialist, that it's a, well, yeah, that it's imperialist, that we're being imperial, that Chicanos who use the term Aslan are being imperialist towards native people that live here in the United States. I don't think that that's true. I think, you know, as I said before, that it is, it is about political development. I think that we need to be able to figure out what it means for there to be 40 million Mexican Americans living in the United States. That means something. It does. But what does it mean? I do not know. But what I do know is that the political imagination of that community is up for grabs. It is absolutely up for grabs. And we see it all the time. The Democrats, the Republicans, and right now those are the only two choices that we have. How do we as Chicanos capture the political imagination of our own community? That is very basic within insurgency, within guerrilla movements, within revolutionary war. Everybody gets a book first. That's the first thing you get is a book. And then you read it. And then you discuss it. That is how you build resistance. Through education. Through capturing that imagination. So I think the people who make those charges, I think they're missing a bigger point. I really do. I think they're missing a huge point. And I think it has to do with age and experience, a lot of them. I think it also has to do with this notion that kind of floats around here in the United States um, about the sanctity of the, of the individual. I mean, if all politics are, are personal, right, then, then what happens to me is, is, what's, is what's important, not what happens to the group. And so I think that when we talk about terms like Aslan, that what we're talking about is the group. We're not talking about the individual. And I think that, that that's really hard for people. I mean, we live in a consumerist, capitalist society where we are what we buy. And I think that statements like that are a very good example of how that consumerism has begun to infect or has infected the way that we think about our liberation. In terms of like Latino and Chicano, I mean, I mean, Latinos are like white people from Europe, man. The thing that boggled my mind the most about this was that I thought that we had, I don't care. I mean, also, I'll be real clear. With, I don't care about the X. I understand the X. I understand the whole piece around, around gender and all that. And I agree with it. I don't, have, I don't have a problem with it at all. I agree with it. I use the X. I have a problem with the word Latino. 
I don't have a problem with X. And I thought that we had settled, or I think that we did settle a, a while ago, this whole thing around Latino. I think that it really obscures a lot of the political issues that we need to, to deal with. I think it particularly, even just this past week, right, you read all these articles about how Latinos don't like black people. I mean, I, I don't even really know what that means. Sure, I know some people that don't like black people. We all do. But does that mean that Latinos, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, you know, all, all these other people, like, there's a lot of them are black. So they don't like black people either, you know, or Mexicans. I think also, too, in terms of the whole thing with that, it, it's very regional, you know. I mean, the ideas growing up in the Midwest, we have a very different relationship with a lot of other communities because we're, as Chicanos, Mexicanos, the absolute minority there. Even though there's a lot of us, we're still the, we're still the absolute minority. And so we have very different relationship, very different function. But yeah, Latino, Chicano, I think that people should call themselves what they are. I think it will decrease a lot of confusion. And I think that it's also important to recognize that, I mean, there are a lot of other groups in, in this country, you know, that fall under the umbrella of Latino, but that um, when they say Latino, what they're really saying is Mexican because there's just so many more of us than there are of them. And I mean, that's a good thing and it's, and it's a bad thing too. I, so I think I also might need to clarify the question. It was specifically uh, Latinx versus a Chicana with an X. So I th think that there is a certain level of indigeneity that you were talking on. I, I didn't want to. You mean like Chicano conversation with? Misperceived. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. you know, being uh, Latin based or, you know, claiming an indigenous term for ourselves. I mean, I thought that was fascinating what you're saying. And I think it touches on that. But uh, in order to talk about Carlos's question specifically, like what does Chicana with an X in the front mean or Chicana X with an X on both ends? Like what does that mean to you versus a Latin Latino, which is Latin based or even Hispanic, I think. But I think the, the question in the 90s about the X on the, on the front of the word Chicano really had to do with a, a group of people trying to reclaim their indigeneity. You know, there was tremendous pushback at that time against spelling Chicano that way. I mean, I was definitely a part of one of the groups that was on the, the forefront of that, of spelling Chicano with an X. That's still the way I do it. I still believe that it has to do with reclaiming indigeneity, and which I think is, is very important to be able to operate and think about operating, operating within a pan-indigenous reality. I don't think that Latino or Latinx does that at all. I mean, Latino is not, it obfuscates the, the situation. It, it confuses it. And so I think that really plays to Scott Duncan's question, which is another one in the queue and we're just getting close on time. So I wanna make sure as many questions get heard. Okay. But he asks, uh, how do we decolonize many of our people who see themselves as only Spanish and the ones look as themselves um, as ersatz and displace Mexicans rather than people from this land? Another question of indigeneity. Yeah, so I think that's an organizing question. 
uh, I think it's a great question, but I think it's, I think it's an organizing question. I think that what we have to do is decide that we're not going to argue with people about this anymore, that we um, have a position and that we are going to, you know, work that position. And I think that that's what's really important. I understand that there a lot of satisfaction can come out of completely destroying somebody in an argument. Like I'm a human being, I get that. But I also understand too, that there are thousands and thousands of people who will understand the reasonableness of our position if they hear it. But if they don't hear it, if all we ever do is argue with these guys, right, about it, then we're not actually getting out to the people who are going to listen. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a matter of organizing. I think, it's, I think it really comes down to, to what it is that you want. I mean, do you want to argue with these guys or do you want Aslan? I, I would like Aslan. I don't really care about arguing with them. So I think another conversation, um, you know, that's in the news a lot, um, it's, you know, it's being talked about, but as relation to protesters being violent or nonviolent, what does it mean to be a part of an insurgent movement as a group of people? And you have a claim to indigeneity, you have a claim to this land. What does it mean to be a part of an insurgent movement? And what does that mean for violence and colonization in general? Could you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the military literature is clear. And this is, I mean, if you go into journals by military thinkers or ones that are being printed even, you know, presently, like contemporarily, they're very clear. In, insurgency, is, insurgency is a thing that takes a long time to develop and that it takes, you know, th no two are alike. To say that, I mean, what, what it means to join it is that you've come to an agreement with other people that there are certain conditions that need to end. That's what it means to join it, like literally. Now, what happens after that, I don't know because I'm not a part of those conversations and I don't have a conversation like that going on, you know, in my life, right? It's just things I think about and occasionally talk about in my classroom. But, you know, it is clear, and this is, I think, this is one of the other reasons why people find it, or, you know, military strategists who would be counterinsurgent find it so dangerous is because insurgents themselves are under no uh, obligation to reveal themselves or their plans or anything until they are absolutely ready to move forward with them. And so I think that the biggest fundamentals of it have to do with education. They have to do with community organizing. They have to do with bringing people into under an umbrella of understanding about their position as a colonized people, as oppressed people. And in terms of violence, we live in a very violent world. There is no example of a country that has um, thrown off the yoke of colonialism that there wasn't violence. There, there isn't one. So, I mean, it's, you know, and again, I mean, those are, those are things that we, that we have to think about. That's part of the decision. Those are all parts of the decisions that we have to make. And I don't know if it's necessarily a decision that we have to make, but, you know, if there's 40 million of us now, how many are there going to be in, in 50 years? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And I think that as we begin to look towards the future, we need to have these conversations. 
because it's possible that there could be 100 million of us and we still wield no significant political power. It's absolutely possible. I mean, the question is, is that what we want for our children? Is that what we want for our grandchildren? Those are also very important questions. I think that they're much bigger questions too than the questions of any sort of like potential violence. I can't hear you, Alex. That uh, you're saying that we live in a very violent world. Um, and I think that plays into some of these last questions we have on here. And if anyone else wants to drop some into the feed, uh, we're going to be done in about five minutes. But uh, Armando Rendon, um, he was uh, commenting on his comment. There. He said, my comment implies a lot of sovereignty. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is an international document, very much alive in our entree that people to international status. Mexican-Americans were born, so to speak, in 1848. We need to assert that as our culture and history as well. And then I think that also plays into Ernesto Ayala's uh, Ayala question. He said, you mentioned the political arrangement, political arrangement in quotes, we have in this country uh, that studied throughout the world. Could you elaborate on this political arrangement that you're talking about? I mean, I think you were addressing it in a way in what you were just talking about, but could you just go a little bit more into this political arrangement? I probably could have said that much more simpler just, just by saying that we're colonized people and that we're, you know, we're not the last one, but it's a little, it's a little bit different here than it has been in, in a lot of other countries. And so I think in terms of how it's studied throughout Latin America and Mexico, certainly in Cuba and Germany seems to have a tremendous fascination with Chicano studies. Other people are looking at what's happening here and sort of waiting to see what happens. And I think a large part of it has to do with the numbers. I think that Profe Rendon is, is right. I think that the Treaty of Guadalupe Lago is, is very important. But it's also, it's one of those things that we just don't know about. You know, how we use that as a way to educate and to, to rebuild what it is that that we want to get back or what, where we're driving towards. But the, the political arrangement, and it's, it's somewhat codified in that treaty, or it is codified in that treaty, like that we have this political arrangement. There, there are things that, that are due to, to the uh, Mexican population, or what has become the Chicano population in the United States as a result of, the, of that treaty. And that's the right to speak Spanish, to not have our lands taken away, all of these things, all the things which have happened. And have not happened. We do. We do have a political. We have political standing. It's how we decide to use it, or begin to use it. Right. Those those things are important. Uh, so we're we're coming up on time. We have about three minutes. There was a comment in the chat, um, and someone said, "I found Chicanos in Cuba, Zambia, Canada," yeah. um, in that Fidel. Castro told them that the Chicanos are his heroes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally have heard, you know, Salvadoranos um, refer to themselves as Chicanos, other Central American, South American people. That was just a comment that was in the chat that might not be on the Facebook, but do you have any closing comments that you would like? What is this, like, what was your goal for Insurgent Aslan? Uh, my why goal. Did you, why did you want to publish this? Uh, Mike, well, first of all, I want to say that's, thank you for asking that. This is, this is actually the book, Insurgent Aslan. It was uh, picked up by uh, Somos and Inscrito, a literary foundation press, Professor Armando Rendon, who is the author of the Chicano Manifesto, which is a book I'm sure that many of you are familiar with. 
read you know my dissertation and uh, approached me about printing the book turning it into a book i was very appreciative of that i've very much i've really enjoyed working with profe rendon over the past year it's really helped me out a lot my goal in in reading this or not in reading it but in writing it was to really try to understand what it takes to end colonialism because I, I don't think that I really understood that up until then. And I don't really think that, I mean, I don't think a lot of us do because it's so big. It's so gigantic. It's so, you know, world ending and transformative, right? That to even begin to imagine what liberation means is, I mean, it's hard. And so, I mean, when we think about almost, I would say almost impossible. So, I mean, looking at how other people have done this and, and what, what became apparent to me right away is that this is not a piecemeal operation, that people have created a plan. They've created a blueprint, right? They're like, hey, if you want to do this, this is how you got you to gotta do some of these things. But like Mao says, every revolutionary situation is different. I mean, we can't take what they did in China and plop it down here in the United States because it's different. And it's certainly different now in the 21st century. So how do we become liberated? How do we return to history, right? How do we become a nation? How do we regain our national historical presence, as Cabral would say, in the 21st century? What are the steps that we have to take? I think those are, those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And those are the questions that I, I tried to deal with and provoke in, in writing this book. I think that's a great place to end. We're at time. I think it also answered some of the, the questions that are um, still in the feed, but we can uh, continue that conversation on the Mexicanos 2070 page. The War of the Fully, Dr. Ernesto Morales is available by email. He's on Twitter. Any final statements before we uh, turn this off? Peace. Peace, this love, revolution. Yeah. yeah. Si se puede. Thanks for coming, everyone. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the raza. This is for the raza. raza, raza, raza. This is the reality dysfunction.